0: hello everybody i'm Dwayne mancini and welcome to another episode of medtech money brought to you by project medtech if you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com if you enjoy this podcast please subscribe and leave a review and you can always visit our website www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on linkedin if you are enjoying this content don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching project medtech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Andreas Forsland from Cognition, discuss how innovating as a startup Versus a large med tech player differ the intersection of med tech, deep tech, and consumer tech. His motivation for why he founded Cognition, their goal of 100 million voices unlocked, the metaverse and Web 3.0, product adoption in high tech spaces, raising capital for the first time, and his very first steps, getting venture dollars first and then non dilutive capital. Why they opened up in Canada why the seed round was so large and so much more so without further ado giovanni's discussion with andreas forson medical innovation starts with medical discussion
1: talking about the future what comes next with project metta andreas Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. I'm very excited about this one. We're gonna touch on some, we'll call them sexy topics in the industry today. And jumping into it, I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no magic or specific formula or either silver bullet on how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I wanted to extract insights to demystify this process and also help those who can benefit from the information now and for future generations of MedTech innovators. And so this audience that's likely listening in right now is a blend of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors. And what I'd like is to share your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO who has no clue on what lies ahead of their journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the reason why you and I specifically are here today is we're gonna talk technology, which I'm excited about. We're gonna get into some brain computer interface dialogue. We're gonna talk about you raising capital and that journey of that recent publication, or I should say press release that came out on that $12 million seed round. We're going to also learn about what's it like raising capital for the first time, and then also on that combination of both raising capital and the technology piece, and you'll help us out with this, this convergence of industries that we're seeing, and whether it's high-tech mixed with classical medical device, et cetera, and some of your strategies that you went out in order to raise that round. So convergence of industries, raising capital for the first time, and then this super sexy technology industry or sector rather called brain computer interfaces before we get into that as well as your background i have a few open-ended questions that i want to start with to warm it up the first one is you being a founder and ceo of a medtech startup and having gone through this journey thus far do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup why or why not am i missing anything or would you add anything else uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, why or why not?
2: Uh, many people are personally motivated to work in healthcare and med tech, uh, primarily because of a desire to help people or to do good in the world. I mean, that's really the draw for most folks to get into the field. Um, uh, but med tech, it's also known in the venture capital world as hard tech, <laughs> meaning it's hard to do. Uh, so it, it takes time. Uh, and And both of those things require money. Uh, and ensuring that the best people can stay focused on solving the problem. Um, and no, you haven't missed anything.
1: And your experience thus far as an entrepreneur, founding a company, all the ups and downs that's come with that, some of the great successes, and maybe even the days that you felt like you had a little bit of pullback. Do you believe in luck? Or how much does luck play into the success of MedTech? And whether that's product development or market timing or raising capital as a whole, do you believe in this notion of luck? Uh, absolutely. Um, but I subscribe
2: to the definition of luck as luck favors those who are prepared to be lucky. Uh, you know, I kind of, uh, use the analogy of being a farmer, you know, so, uh, you know, if you kind of take that farmer mentality of planting seeds early and then seeing what blossoms, you know, the farmer can only really harvest what he knows has been planted, you know, and I think that's the case of always putting, uh, making sure that you're uh, feeding the industry that you're going to be harvesting later uh, and helping people, whether that's helping individuals find jobs, network, um, actively engaging in the community um, or building things that that people are really attracted to doing and solving problems. So, so always sort of be planting seeds, I think is my advice.
1: And as this farmer of med tech and this med tech entrepreneur that you are, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, and you even alluded to the fact that known by the investor community as hard tech, if you knew what you know now, would you do it all over again as a med tech entrepreneur? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently if you could? I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: you know, I absolutely would. And because I am one of those people who is intrinsically motivated uh, to do good in the world and to help people, um, if I were only interested in this because of the money, uh, I probably would have quit a long time ago. And and I'm sure you would ask many other people that have quit, um, probably quit for those same reasons, right. Um, uh, But the irony, you know, is, you know, what did I learn uh, that were these inflection points, you know, I think uh, prior to starting Cognition, uh, I worked in uh, the innovation industry. I was working as an innovation strategist, design strategist within Philips uh, Electronics and also in a number of other industries. Um, and one of the things we started looking at is when, all the way back to the very beginning of a business model and saying, how many different dimensions on the business model can we disrupt? Uh, and so what is unique or novel or innovative? Um well, when you're consulting a big organization like that on the inside, it's really easy to prescribe, you know, 10 out of 12 areas that you might want to disrupt or innovate. But you have to really like, if you're using your own money and you're bootstrapping something, or are going to start to attract venture capital. You really need to figure out which of those areas or dimensions you really want to disrupt because it's extremely expensive to try and disrupt many different areas. So as an example, you can be disrupting on the technology itself, you could be disrupting in IP, you could be disrupting in the customer experience, you could be disrupting in some technical features, uh, you could be disrupting in the funding methods, you know, like how, how something gets funded like SaaS or other things. Um, you know, so, so thinking about all those different dimensions, ideally the sooner you can define what it is that you truly are disruptive on and you own that, that's it's gonna serve you well.
1: So, this all plays into this next question, and I'll just ask it very dryly. Being this med tech entrepreneur in hard tech, is it glamorous being a med tech CEO? And your definition of glamorous, whatever that means, but is it glamorous?
2: Is it glamorous? Um, <laughs> um, you know, the funny thing is, uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I do the same things that I did before closing a big round of funding. <laughs> you know, I wake up, I make breakfast, you know, I take my kid to school, uh, I go to work, I work long hours. you know, I have great people that I work with. Um, so the difference is that we're getting more headlines now, right? And so you know, you get a lot of headlines. Obviously, that can get to your head. So I, I, I think what's really cool about sort of the fact that we're working on something that's being perceived as being white hot in the industry right now, Is it's kind of like uh, if you're a surfer and you've got, you're waiting in the water and it's flat and then the sets start to come in, right, (laughs) you know, ride the wave, man, you know, but, but at the end of the day, it's all about execution. Uh, And so we're still just heads down, focused on building the most amazing platform we can. Uh, And, you know, that's really kind of where we're focused and where I try and keep my, my
1: attention. And then you mentioned the name already, Cognition. What does the name of your company mean? How did you arrive at that name?
2: Well, the fascinating thing is, well, cognitive computing is definitely thinking about AI and the ability for AI to augment uh, or truly augment an individual. So not replace someone's abilities, but truly enhance their abilities. That's really the core of what we're doing. And so cognition, when we think about this, is really a neurotechnology startup. uh, And we're focused on building a platform that we call assisted reality, kind of like augmented reality, but it's applications with a purpose that help people um, you know, uh, sort of enabling technology to adapt to the user like a prosthetic, uh, that it learns about the user and can adjust itself to the user. So the user becomes uh, more capable uh, over time. So thinking about it truly as an AI, as a prosthetic, but we're focusing not necessarily as like bionic arms and things like that, that other folks are working on, We're thinking about it much more as the software layer, uh, sort of the I.O., the input output or the interaction layer uh, between a a person and another person uh, or the interaction layer between a person and the built environment like smart homes or other kinds of connected I.O.T. controls. Um, That interface between a person and say mobility uh, in the case of someone with a disability, it could be a motorized wheelchair, it could be a cobot or a robot or some other kind of capable uh, assistant Also content. How do you interact with content uh, when you're not speaking uh, or if you have limited physical abilities? Uh, And then also because you're dealing with sensors and and biometrics, how do we either uh, make their health data more uh, obvious uh, and explicit for them to make sense of, or perhaps their health data and biometrics can assist in uh, adjusting the user interface uh, of that IO so that it becomes easier so if someone has fatigue that it understands that they're being t- they're, they're becoming tired and that the system itself can adapt to that fatigue or if they are overly stimulated that the system can adapt to that overstimulation right without the person even knowing because they want to feel like they're in a flow state so these are the kinds of things that we're thinking about you know and 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 cognition uh, being our first market is really helping individuals with disabilities uh, there's about a half a billion people worldwide that are affected by um, a central nervous disability that affects uh, physical mobility, uh, physical movement, as well as communication ability to be understood. Uh, so of the half a billion, we as a company are on a mission uh, to unlock a hundred million new voices in the world, right? So you think about Stephen Hawking as, as a fantastic example. Why does he get to have all the fun? Why does he be, Why is he the only famous person that is unable to physically control his body and speak, but has you know, the spotlight on him? So we, we really as a company, we, we see cognition as being kind of the Nike for disabilities. Like Nike says like to athletes, just do it. Well, cognition really represents for people with disabilities, I can do it, that sense of independence and agency. And we want to be that platform that people really become kind of their own best self.
1: Love that. Well, not only are you mission-driven, you're in the white-hot space of technology, and you just closed a huge round of which we'll get into the mechanics of. So, all those listening in right now, there's clearly a reason why Andreas Forslund is so happy. And if you if you look at his LinkedIn profile photo, you, you can tell that he's very happy in that photo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the man behind the voice thus far, Andreas Forslund, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How did you build your career? Whether it's going through school and academia into professionalism and your career, to ultimately then being the founder and CEO of Cognition. And then when we get there, we'll have a deeper dive into Cognition. But who are you?
2: <laughs> who am I? Um, wow, uh, that, that's a that's a big question. Um, <clears throat> so so I I guess just on a personal level. Um, Beyond school and anything, uh, I grew up uh, in a kind of unusual childhood, right? Like my father uh, was born in 1901, Uh, so my dad was 73 when I was born. Uh, So, um, so, so I looked at the world in a very different way. Um, I was kind of a quiet kid, and I like to pay attention to the subtleties of what's going on in the world. So. you know, so, so I was very observant as that, a quiet child, <laughs> I guess, if you will. Um, but later I ended up going to art school. So I went to design school um, and much to like, you know, many people's chagrin, it's like, what, what kind of job can you get as a designer? Well, look at what I'm doing now. Right. Um, so I never, ever thought that I would be working in neurotechnology. I never thought I'd be working with some of the most brilliant scientists and engineers in the world. Um, let alone leading them. You know, when I was in high school, uh, uh, my career counselor said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to art school. And she said, why? And I said, I don't know. I kind of thought I could be a circus trainer when I grew up. And the funny thing is, I actually am, right? Like, you know, <laughs> we, we have, you know, we have essentially all of the characters uh, that would make up an alternative universe as a, as a circus, if you think about it, because you have to deal with cross-functional teaming, right? So you go into a creative field um, it's nonlinear right in order to, to produce a, a feature film uh, a complex website or an application you have to know how to collaborate with people with different disciplines um, how to cr- have a creative vision uh, and how to, to work towards that vision with collaborators and I think that's something that over the last 10 years 10 or 15 years has started to really take hold in in the academic world you know um, but I learned how to do that in the 90s, right? And, you know, and my first job out of school was to work at IBM. Uh, I helped build IBM's first intranet. Um, after that, uh, that was back with Netscape, uh, you know, and uh, Netscape 1 and Photoshop 1. And then, uh, you know, after that, I was involved with a whole bunch of firsts. Um, I, I worked with Bank of America and Nations Bank on the very first online banking system. The very first check, electronic check that was ever uh, issued came through an application I designed. Um, um, Yeah, back when Flash was launched, Macromedia Flash, if you've heard of that or remember that back in the day, um, I was creating the very first um, banner ads on websites that actually had commerce inside of the banner itself. So you could have animations and actually transact with a banner. With the idea of like, could we take point of sale out to the user as opposed to clicking through to a web page? Could I take the shop directly to the ad? Uh, you know, so really thinking differently throughout my whole career um, about how you could use technology in very different ways. Um, and then later, I I went to uh, Progressive Insurance. Uh, actually, I was the creative director there uh, for their customer experience. Um, so I got into fintech and insurance. Uh, and then uh, what I did there, which was interesting because they, they said, hey, we're going through a major rebranding, we're splitting the direct channel from the indirect channel, and we needed to rebrand this indirect channel. But on the direct side, progressive.com, um, they wanted to go through a redesign. Well, the funny thing was back then, <laughs> the homepage, uh, essentially, they were looking for ways that they could find incremental growth uh, in the business. and so. I just did a quick heuristics evaluation of the webpage. And I I told him, I said, hey, did you know that your buy button, your buy and quote button is below the fold? And 50% of the time that that homepage is rendered, the graphics are broken. So if we fix the graphics and bring the buttons above the fold, what will happen? Well, the company realized an extra billion dollars the next year because of just making it, you know, so you don't have to like solve the hardest problems by tackling the hardest problems. You just have to look at it. For the solution, you know, and and really think about it that way. So after that, I went to Progressive, uh, or excuse me, uh, Philips uh, in their design group. So uh, like IDEO or Frog Design, they have an internal design group that's focused on uh, innovation um, and sort of the full life cycle of value creation uh, at at Philips. Um, so. Uh, So I worked at Philips uh, across healthcare, uh, consumer electronics, and lighting uh, to help as an innovation strategist and a design strategist. So I worked with corporate control on their sustainability reporting, reframing their messaging to analysts. Um, Feedback was the year prior to me getting involved with um, Philips was that analysts were saying that Philips didn't get it and they were getting negative ratings on on the street. Uh, we helped reframe their story uh, around purpose and linked all of the different business units to that purpose. The very next year, analysts were giving them high marks uh, as a company. I mean, that's just communications and messaging. Uh, you know, um, Getting into product development, uh, I, I helped uh, create the first uh, netbook, uh, launched a new laptop for emerging markets in Brazil. Um, and, uh, anyway, so, so, so how, how did I get into this space? Right. You know, kind of a long and journeyed path of first, um, really thinking creatively about how to solve problems and realizing that you don't need big teams to solve, to do big, big projects. Right. So we still have a very small team. Um, and I think that was one of the things that was really attractive to venture capitalists was like, how in the world, like disbelief, like how could you create something like what your ambition And your staffing don't match. Like, how do you do that? And it's like, it's all in aligning head and heart and hiring the right people to join you on the team. Um, Mm -hmm. So we call our individuals high capacity, you know, team players, right? It's like, these are people who think the way I just described non-linearly and can figure out how to address issues without necessarily long drawn out uh, sort of timetables.
1: Love that. And that ultimately led you to then founding the company, right? So, I mean, when you went from working at companies, did you just have this napkin idea at Starbucks one day? And you're like, that's what I'm going to go after? Or how did that actual aha moment happen?
2: Uh, It was a while ago. Um, uh, It was a personal thing. Uh, So my mom, uh, she came to visit for her 70th birthday uh, here in Santa Barbara, California. And when she arrived, she wasn't feeling well. And then shortly after she arrived, she was admitted into the ICU with pneumonia and it was pretty aggressive. It went into septic shock and kidney failure. And so she was put on life support. Uh, She survived, but it was weeks in the hospital and then months of recovery and rehabilitation. Uh, But when she was in the ICU, she was on a ventilator. And so that was my first exposure of how fragile life could be uh, when your communication is stripped away from you, right. Uh, You know, so she was conscious and aware of what's happening, but because she had so many wires with systems monitoring her body, plus uh, intubation, um, they had to restrain her, uh, to the bed. I mean, that's just kind of standard protocol as you restrain the arms, um, especially when you have sedation in and out. Uh, and then she, she had this tube in her throat. And so, uh, I had to communicate for her And I, so, so what that meant is that I had to sit by her side 24, seven, uh, for weeks, um, essentially waiting for the doctor to make his rounds, uh, his or her rounds. Uh, and so the rounds would happen once a day. Right. And so if you miss that, like if, if, if I had to go to the restroom or go to the restaurant or step outside and I missed the doctor, I'd have to wait another 24 hours to talk to the doctor. And so that's, (laughs) it's hard. Right. And so, um, I started thinking this was in 2012 and so I was I was working at Citrix at the time uh, which I uh, skipped but uh, so I left Phillips and I went to work with Citrix uh, in their software as a service division Um, and so I was managing a huge team uh, about 60 people worldwide uh, so we had three different locations uh, and so I had to sort of keep up with what I had to do while I was by her bedside in the ICU uh, communicating and so After she was discharged uh, about a year later, that sort of stuck with me. Uh, And I attended a Startup Weekend uh, event, if you're familiar with those. It's like a 54-hour hackathon kind of event uh, where it's not just hacking. It's actually you're pitching a full business and a business model. Uh, And um, I had been a mentor in those Startup Weekends uh, for several years. And then uh, I decided I'm going to pitch this idea of a little... um, gesture controller like a little river stone kind of thing that someone that she could hold in her hand if she were in that situation again that she could hold in her hand and it could be paired to an app that could speak uh, or monitor her her status her activity level uh and so in that weekend i essentially we built a team market validated it uh through street interviews uh visited with you know braille institute and rehabilitation centers and hospitals over the weekend uh, storyboarded out all the different use cases with for this kind of technology and part of our team actually 3d printed prototyped and actually designed a circuit board that worked that could actually send a, a ping two different distinct discriminating pings to a mobile app all in a weekend right it was it was pretty pretty rad um, and we ended up winning that startup weekend contest and I was like well that was cool uh, but then, we thought, well, do I want to sort of stay in my day job or do I want to pursue this higher higher benefit, right? Like it felt like a calling uh, and I decided to leave a pretty high paying influential job and I said, let's just go for it, right? And, uh, and that's sort of what started this.
1: That's awesome. So that led you to Cognition. Here we are. There's an obviously personal connection behind it. You're in a hot white space right now. You've alluded to what cognition does, but let's just deep dive. What is cognition? What have you built? And if you frame it from a elementary or very lay person uh, terms, like where you meet a random person at a bar and they have no idea about technology and medical backgrounds, et cetera, what can we expect to understand what cognition is and and what you've built? Well, we've over the year, over the past
2: several years, we've built different um embodiments of our platform right so the underlying technology is really a multi it's a it's like a rip which actually we we just got another uh, patent uh, granted which is pretty cool um and it's 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 essentially it's a multimodal platform where you have different you can mix and match different io um to create a, an accessible solution so the ability when we talk about mixing and matching mixing and matching could be um Uh, touches or swipes on digital interfaces. It could be cameras uh, doing facial recognition or eye tracking. Uh, It could be a little sip and puff straw that uh, measures your breath uh, that you can use as a control interface with different pulses uh, of, of breath. Uh, inhale or exhale, um, and or it could include uh, things like a brain-computer interface, right? Um, uh, it it can include exo- accelerometers and gyroscopes um, for three-dimensional yaw, pitch, roll input controls. Um, so, so un- our underlying platform really is kind of agnostic to um, which what type of sensor. So, if you think about intention and outcome, those things are are only limited by the type of sensing and the speed at which you can access certain outcomes. So it's the ability to take a brain computer interface coupled with like motion detection, yaw pitch roll, and we can combine that in an AR headset with uh, essentially a BCI plus AR together into a single system and essentially have a complete control interface um, that doesn't require really any calibration Um, there's not a lot of uh, training that has to go into the system itself so what we call time to value TTV um, is accelerated so if you're familiar with brain computer interface work or EEG or any kind of uh, biotech bioelectronic stuff um, it takes a long time to set it up and then get it calibrated and get it going and so but usually in a research environment it might take an hour just to do a, a research study and you spend 45 minutes in the setup and teardown of that, where what we've created is something that you can literally put on, turn on, and you start start using it, right? <clears throat> so um, why does that matter? Well, the augmented reality interface itself that we have built into the system, it's kind of a general purpose system. So we can create any app that we want um, that can be controlled with head movement or BCI. Um and so Today, we've got a number of applications that we're creating for our customers. Uh, So one of those applications is a communications interface where they can control predictive keyboards, uh, stored phrases. um, uh, The corpus itself, the language system itself, can adapt to the user and learn the user's sort of unique vernacular, how they communicate, tone and stuff. Um, So there's a communications app that that we built uh, that we're going to be making available with the system. Uh, we also partnered with Amazon uh, Alexa to integrate Alexa inside of the system. So there's no other hardware required at all. So you can, you can send cues directly to Alexa within the AR environment, and she responds inside of the headset, um, which is really cool. Um, the headset has Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and uh, 4G LTE cellular built in. So it's also a go anywhere headset. Um, so imagine that you could remotely control anything through an Alexa skill And you don't have to actually be there Um, and you can do that all within the within the system so um, and so these are these are some of the things that you you can do so so our whole thing is positioning this wearable initially uh, as a prosthetic for insurance funding so insurance will fund this device um, as number one speech generating device number two environmental control device for controlling your environment and then third is a potential for integrating into um mobility controls um, so think about a joystick for a powered wheelchair well the system could replace that um, and also augment the person's ability of understanding information around them so you think about Niantic or like Pokemon go or you know the ability to have ways uh, in your visual heads-up display of like what's going on around you um, that's all possible now with this kind of technology so you know our goal again is like hundred million voices unlocked um, But that's just the start, because you're going to see a a whole different world uh, where people are going to be doing more out out and about, you know, unlocking friendships, much more independence, um, cruising around up and down the streets in in wheelchairs with Cognition One headsets on, saying hello to people, ordering coffee at the barista, um, opening and closing their own doors, you know, doing whatever they
1: want. So I'm going to try to summarize this. Because you, you give a really great description of what you're trying to build. So j- just from the human experience perspective, this is a lack of a better phrase, helmet or a wearable on the head. And then there's a shield in front of the eyes where they can see like some sort of heads up display and then have all these abilities to communicate using all these various functions that you mentioned, basically enabling disabled individuals to be part of society. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So if you're familiar with what an augmented reality headset looks like, say, like a Microsoft HoloLens or Magic Leap, a pair of eyeglasses or, um, you know, those are really the only two major ones right now and uh, us. Um, so it's a, it's a visor that has a tinted lens uh, that you can see through and other people can see you. They see your face, can make eye contact. Uh, but the difference is that we have holographic um, uh projections onto the lens for the person wearing the headset that they can see different menu items and interact with sort of the world around them. Uh, But they can do it without speaking a word uh, and without having to use any uh, front-facing cameras or any kind of um, hand controllers.
1: I'm gonna jump into this question just to get definitions. One, you mentioned the assisted reality and you gave some description on that, but I'm gonna tie it into this other question. Mm This one's for me. Uh, maybe it helps out the, the audience here, but I, I've heard this word over and over again lately, metaverse. I've even seen it associated with some of your press release and website and things like that. What is metaverse? What does it mean? In in in, in techie terms, you know, back in
2: the 90s, right? You you had sort of the internet. <laughs> the internet was a big thing, right? Um and it was it was totally dismissed. It was sort of, everybody was dismissive about it, but it was growing like mad. Um, because why? Because people, it was a new frontier. It was a new way to access, it was a new way to access information, right? And that was web 1.0, right? Um, and now, you know, you start to look and you say, well, then there's web 2.0. Over the last couple of years, you've seen mobile. So mobile, as opposed to desktop, was really the thing that brought, widespread access to sort of web 2.0, right? Mobile access, mobile computing, things like that. Well, really what metaverse is, is web 3.0. It's the third generation of the internet where it's no longer just about content and content access. It's about information in the real world that is coded. It's like digitizing real stuff. So if you think about cameras that can detect objects in the environment, Well, then those objects are no longer just analog objects. There's digital represent data that's associated with that object. So if I'm looking across at a lamp, well, then if the camera recognizes that that's a lamp, it might even be able to query a database to find out where the lamp is from, where I could buy it, how much it costs, um, what the voltage is on it. So there's attributes about real world things that can be picked up. And represented to the user with information that you could never access before. Mm. So, like that's just an example of the metaverse, right? Is that the real world and the digital world are starting to blur, um, and most of that has been hindered. I wouldn't say hindered. Um, uh, VR was kind of the first entrant into that, but VR is very much like everything's contained and controlled in a in a complete closed system. Um, Augmented reality is where you're looking at the real world and information in the real world is augmented. So the metaverse is kind of actually both of those. It's all kind of munged together. So if you want to have a 100% immersive experience, you might choose to do that in VR. If you want to have a more augmented experience with the metaverse, then you would choose an AR solution.
1: And then this notion of assisted reality, is that pretty much what you just described in a different way or what does assisted reality mean then and how does that tie into cognition
2: well yeah so so the metaverse is going to have all kinds of things right like recreation sports you go to the gym you're going to go to like an augmented gym right you're going to be working out at home and like you saw with covid and oculus quest and all this stuff it's like you know digital health And exercise and well-being is like the number one driver for uh, adoption of virtual reality. Uh, Number two is recreation and gaming, right? Uh, And so you start to look at those um, activities uh, for VR, um, and so those are really driving that. So, but those are those are kind of fun recreational use cases, you know. when I talk about assisted reality, it's more about the practical things. You know, what are the things that you need to get done? And so assisted reality isn't just for disabilities. It's also inclusive of things like B2B stuff. Enterprise work falls into assisted reality. Um, industry, somebody's working, you know, at a, at a Boeing factory trying to diagnose what's wrong with a jet engine, you know, um, you know that's assisted reality, right, in a more main sort of broader scope.
1: I have two main topic questions before we jump into the raising capital piece on on cognition. Um, The the first is this BCI brain-computer interface sector that we've been talking about here. And for those, I would suggest certainly deep dive into it. It's a fascinating sector that Andreas is certainly innovating in right now. But this notion of brain-computer interfaces and Daniel Hawkins, and there's implantable BCIs, and then there's external wearable BCIs. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you this big wide open question. I'll let you run until you finish and then I'll ask my next question. But this BCI landscape, what's the difference between implantable BCIs and external BCIs? Are there benefits to either or? Um, What's the challenge with that industry, both external and implantable? And then you can wrap it up with the benefits of cognition's technology within the BCI landscape. So just talk about in general, and imagine you're talking to a a group of people who never even heard the term BCI, let alone (laughs) spelled brain computer interface. Like what are brain computer interfaces implantable versus explantable or or external, and then follow up with cognition's benefit.
2: Sure. Yeah. So so, BCI or BMI, there's a, there's a number of acronyms that sort of represent the same thing, which is, um, enabling, you know, a sensor to be in contact with the body and the, and that sensor helps connect the body to a machine or a computer. Um, so it used to be called brain-to-computer interface, but then that's too many. So you drop the two and it's brain-computer interface. Uh, uh, but ultimately, it's the ability to allow someone to control a machine directly using their synaptic activity in their brain, right? Or other kinds of... Um, uh, you know, blood flow or other kinds of things that can kind of happen in the body. Um, you can use these as um, sensors uh, that can be used to translate into commands or controls. Uh, so, you know, in, there's a couple of different kinds. You can sort of divide it down the middle and say there's sensors that can be implanted in the body uh, or there's sensors that can be worn on the body. Uh, so that's invasive versus non-invasive. And so on the invasive side, you um, Well, it requires surgery. I mean, that's the number one thing that you would have to to come to grips with is if you want to have a brain computer interface, uh, do you want it in your body or on your body? Do you want to be able to just like take it off and put it in the drawer? Or do you want to live with it chronically? Um, uh, Because the only way to get it out would be to have another surgery to have it removed. um, Unless you're having a dissolvable sort of temporary interface, right? Um, That could be absorbed into the body and excreted. Um, So (laughs) When you think about implantable um, in medical terms, those are all class three uh, high risk devices, and they're very expensive to make, very expensive to implant, very expensive to support. Um, And they take a long time for the user to learn how to use them. And there are very few people today that have them. Um, There's a number of... um, there's one or two uh, industry leaders uh, in the implantable brain-computer interface today that have been around for 10 or 20 years. Uh, and then there's some incumbents that you're obviously aware of um, that are in the implant space that have recently been funded, and inc- including one of our partner companies, uh, Paradromics. Uh, so our, our lead investor, full disclosure, Prime Movers Lab, uh, they invested in, in Paradromics as well as cognition um, because they too see that implantable and non-invasive BCI can actually be compatible. They can. They're totally complementary. It just depends on what the right use case is. Um, so um, I think uh, for the non-invasive side, what we have is what we're using is EEG. Um, that's a technology used for measuring um, the electrical activity uh, that the brain is producing, uh, but it's being picked up with little dry electrodes that, that are touching your scalp. Uh, they can touch the front, you know, the bare scalp or, or they can uh, be designed to go through your hair uh, depending on sort of where you want to place those sensors. Uh, and um, you know, they're much more comfortable. They used to be, used to require wet uh, electrodes or gel or electrodes or or amplified electrodes. Um, But now you're starting to get high quality signals with dry passive electrodes where you have, um, which means the cost is going down uh, for non-invasive BCI. Uh, The signal quality is parity or better. due to like some material innovations that are happening and also signal processing uh, work that's happening for drive passive electrodes. So, you know, that being said, um, I'd say the highest and best use case. So what we've done is we've looked at all the different types of use cases for brain computer interface. um, And even being agnostic to like why we got this in this industry in the first place, we, we always kept coming back around to the problem we're solving today as the best Problem to be solving right now for BCI, which has to do with communication and control access. Um, All the enabling conditions are in place for a non invasive solution um, to do that. Um, Now, the challenge that I'm seeing is the implantable uh, companies that are coming online now are also starting to line up to that value proposition as well to say, no, 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 you need to have an invasive uh, BCI for communication and control. And I'm going to say for sure that the signal quality is far better uh, for an implant, but you have to have a craniotomy to get there, right? And most people aren't going to sign up or volunteer for that. Um, uh, so, my thoughts are there's a highest and best use for implantables when you combine it with um, uh, neural stimulation. You can create what's called a closed loop system uh, that you could deal with real therapeutic benefits, right? The ability to have extremely high resolution uh, sensing. Uh, with local um, actuation of any kind of stimulation that's happening directly in there for things like epilepsy or Parkinson's or other kinds of things that are extremely debilitating. Um, You can even get into digital medicine where you're dealing with therapeutics um, uh, to help actually improve uh, quality of life um, or extend it. So I think saving lives or the quality of life uh, for severe uh cns or nervous system disorders um an implant is is worth considering um for practical everyday use uh like what we're creating it doesn't make any sense um in my mind
1: so this next chapter of of discussion is, I'll put a plug in there because I geek out over this topic. Um, It's a very high-tech technology that you're building right now. Obviously, once again, using that white hot space that we've been alluding to. Um, There's this book that I'm reading right now and and I heard about it and I had to jump on it because it's this topic that's so hot with high-tech going against old school regulations and how we're trying to keep up. And it's Azeem Mazar. I'm holding it in my hand right now. It's called The Exponential Age how we accelerate how accelerating technology is transforming business, politics, and society. And so you're talking about developing this assisted reality, brain-computer interface, unlocking 100 million voices. Um, You talked about the fact that BCIs, which are implantable, are class three, clearly invasive technology. We're in this cusp of just crazy technology being built right now. And the, accept of, the acceptance of this style of technology by ordinary humans, the majority of the world, in addition to how this plays in technology outpacing regulations and this acceptance of, do we actually need this or is this just another thing that's cool and could help out a few people? What's your What's your perspective on brain computer interfaces and that high tech sector, if you will, mm being accepted by the world and these ordinary humans that most of us are, um, and the regulations that have to encapsulate them. Are we really ready for things like this that you're building?
2: I think some parts of the market are are literally dying for it. Uh, they need it, right? So it's there's a high need in certain parts of society. I think for the rest of us who want to use BCI for gaming You know, it's all about hype and it's all about aligning expectations Um, and typically hype and expectations around using BCI for mainstream use cases has a lot to do with things like latency, um, speed, battery budget, you know, some really practical things um, that have and signal, you know, accuracy. So there's a bunch of fundamental things that have to be um, made more robust and more reliable before... I think it it would make sense to sort of start to build a lot of hype uh, for mainstream applications. Now, there's some I'm kind of putting some boxes around that because my point of view is creating a real time, like a real time prosthetic. Um, So if I want to use a brain computer interface to control something, then my expectations are really, really high. Right. But if I'm using a brain computer interface to log data over long periods of time, and I might eventually like I might refer to an app to like analyze my sleep data or these other things like that's asynchronous analysis. So you're doing offline analysis of data. That kind of stuff's like right here and right now. Right. But the ability to have sort of that super high speed, super accurate control interface where I have, you know, more than six degrees of freedom to be able to control things and move things in a way that would, you know, be sub, you know, sub 200 millisecond kind of response rate. I mean, we are talking like super fast, super accurate. I think we're a ways from that. Now, cognition is working towards that, but what we're doing is on our roadmap, we're saying at what point will we hit that inflection point? And at that point we've crossed the the threshold to say, now we can actually start to talk about other use cases that are out there that are more mainstream, but for now, You know, given all of the sort of performance criteria and reliability, robustness, accuracy, speed, you know, our use case is exactly well-timed for the market.
1: So now we're going to jump into the whole capital raising piece in your most recent press release on you raising a $12 million seed round. Typically we don't set this much of a background in terms of going into the capital raise, but you're involved in something so sexy, so high tech, so futuristic, Mm -hmm. but also um, complex in in a, in a good way. Right. And I think the audience listening in right now finally has the story of brain computer interfaces, metaverses, assisted reality, like you're building, raising capital for something like that. Here we are finally at this conversation. Um, How, how do you do that? Especially with the convergence of these, of these uh, industries, right? So you, you mentioned that you already have a partnership with Amazon Alexa, right? It's not your classical medical device company. Um, when you're when you're having this physical, t- tangible, manufactured helmet, I'm using this that basic word. So it's not just a SaaS platform. Um, you have actually a regulated, tangible product. So we'll call it medtech, but it has all these high tech components to it, and these partnerships with Amazon, et cetera. I mean. When you sat there and years ago, even though you had the idea and you're like, okay, I have this idea. This is what we're going to build. I'm going to quit my high paying job. I'm going to start and do this awesome mission. When you started realizing that you had to go out and raise external capital for the first time, right? So even mm-hmm. now yeah. that we learned about your history, yeah. right? Like you've never raised capital before. Now here you are. Mm-hmm. How do you even do that? What was that initiation and aha moment of, okay, here's my idea. Now, what do I do for capital? What, what were your first steps? Who did you go after?
2: Um, <laughs> the first thing we did is we, we brought on a couple of advisors. Um, and so, um, and in retrospect, I don't know that that was the smartest thing to do. <laughs> um, you know, so so, so we, we we took kind of a, a we, we tried a bunch of different funding methods right so we, we tried crowdfunding on indiegogo with our very first product which was that stone which kind of preceded the cognition one headset um, so we did crowdfunding so we know what that's about um, uh, you know then we uh did an accelerator and so we tried that uh and we built a really killer network of you know this is like planting seeds right like the accelerators are a great seed maker because uh, you can kind of plant some seeds and, and, and nurture those. Um, we did angel. So we did an angel round, uh, as a first seed one angel round. Um, and then we did a bridge, right? So we were like, Oh, we ran out, you know, we were running a lot, you know, needed more capital. And so we had to do a bridge and then we did a series C2, which is what we just did now. So, you know, all that being said, you know, had we had a chance to sort of do it all over again, um, what would it, we have done, um, most of the indicators were use non dilutive funding as early as you can. Right. So anything you can do to, to, to use non dilutive funding to strip away risk, because ultimately you're going to hit an inflection point where you're going to need a lot of capital to sort of see something all the way through. It takes a little bit of capital to build a proof of concept. It takes about three times that to build a real, a real proof of concept, <laughs> a real prototype, right that could actually go into manufacturing and then that last mile takes a lot of money right so it's like it, you know it takes a lot of money and so understanding kind of you know how long how much money are you going to need to get to break even you know it's extremely hard to predict that it's it's super hard to model that when you're first getting started um, so if i were to model it all over again i would have a much more realistic uh, perspective on you know cumulatively how much money would be required um, I would have a better idea of what kinds of funding options are sort of just right, like Goldilocks for different stages. So so uh, what's useful, and I learned this uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, is uh, the TRL scales, technology readiness level scales. Um, NASA uh, pioneered those um, and thinking about like a TRL zero is like a napkin sketch, TRL nine is it's robust enough to be shipped uh, into outer space and run autonomously on its own, and it can almost fix itself. Um, so, so you're somewhere on that, you know, you're somewhere on that spectrum, and then figuring out okay, what funding sources line up best for different stages of those TRL zero, TRL one, TRL two, three, four, five, um, and not getting too far ahead of yourself because some people want to start going into the venture capital fundraising too early. Uh, and then that becomes a huge distraction, right? You end up sort of chasing and, and, and you're kind of running straight in. You're, you're hopeful that you're going to be lucky um, because you're hopeful that someone's going to look past your shortcomings <laughs> and that you're actually not ready yet for venture. Um, or you might not be ready for venture ever, depending on what the business is or the product, right? And so just getting really clear, is this actually a venture capital backable idea, Um If so, how much? And if you figure that piece out, then, then the next step comes with, well, with who, (laughs) you know, you know, and, and that's where we sort of um, spent a lot more time than expected. So if you're going to think about fundraising um, and you say, oh, we're going to, we're going to close around. Like I read the Y Combinator report and all of a sudden it's like people are getting funded before they're even like out of school and all this stuff. And it's like, I wouldn't read the hype into that, like get, get, get realistic on how much time it's going to actually take to do the fundraising, you know? So we thought it would take three months. It took nine, you know? Um, So, you know, and, and that was like six months of like heavy DD, like heavy diligence. So if you're working backwards, you need to make sure you have enough capital to even make it through the diligence process.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. That I want to go back because the, the 12 million C we'll talk about, but that first seed one that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Where, where, did, where did that come from? Was that all angel money? How long ago was that and how much was it?
2: Yeah, we did a, uh, we did a seed one in 2017 uh, and that was uh, it was originally going to be a $750,000 seed one uh, and it was oversubscribed so we took on 1.2 million uh, on that seed one. Um, and then we got some additional grants. so a- a- after that we opened up a, a-, a R&; d center in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, and Canada is quite generous with some of their their public funding, uh, especially for scientific and engineering research. Um, uh, and so we were able to get a couple of really nice grants uh, directly, like within the first few months of opening our Canadian office. Um, and so that helped us build out our software engineering team uh, up there. Uh, and then it also helped us with accelerating partnerships with healthcare and universities um, to work with. So that 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 was really. You got. You have to have sort of a, you know, a venture plus a non dilutive strategy. You got to. You got to kind of work both of them at the same time, um, and one helps the other, right? So venture capitalists are not against uh, non dilutive stuff. They're excited about it. So if you can line up grant money, it actually makes the venture go further. Uh, and it's it if you can if you can attract grant money from like. NIH, NSF, SBIR, STTR stuff, you should absolutely pursue those because they also reduce the perceived risk for venture to say, if you can, if you can get through the diligence process with the government on these programs, then you you know, you're, you're kind of in rarefied air, you know, like, so if you have an NIH grant, fantastic, your odds of getting venture are much higher. Um, We ironically did it the opposite way. So we got venture first and then like other grant money is sort of piling in after, um, which is kind of interesting.
1: And that first seed round, the 1.1, you said that was 1.2, 1.2. 2, that was venture or was that angels?
2: It was angel, but it was actually a priced round. So that okay. was, that was the first it was. And, and, and if you're thinking about it, you need to really, re, uh, there's a book, um, uh, I'm going to step off camera for a second here. um, There's a book and I have it right here. I still keep it and I don't get any commissions or royalties from it. So don't, don't, (laughs) um, but um, Brad Feld, he's a well-known venture capitalist out of uh, I think he's in Boulder, Colorado. Um, He wrote this, uh, this book called Venture Deals. um, Mm -hmm. And it's literally, it's, it's, it's written for entrepreneurs um, from a venture capitalist perspective of like, here's like all of the vernacular of, of, what you would need to learn to actually deal with a deal and also explains like what kinds of terms, like why is a venture capitalist asking for certain terms, um, how you should respond to those terms, things like this. So I would recommend picking up that book. Um, It was helpful for me in just having kind of a little playbook um, anytime someone would ask for something in a term sheet, I would quickly jump to it and say, well, what exactly does that mean? And what are the pros and cons and the trade-offs and what am I giving up that I don't know right now? Um, so definitely that's super helpful.
1: So you mentioned angels preparation for VC non-dilutive funding. Actually earlier on in this series, I interviewed, um, Anish Kaushal out of Amplitude Ventures in Canada and we talked about the robustness going on in Toronto as as being an R&D hub and, and innovation within medtech for sure. Um, and also he highlighted the fact that Canada to your your words was very generous on their non-dilutive funding or their grant funding. It's unique. I haven't heard this before. Um, US company purposefully opening up in Canada. Did you do that strategically to take advantage of that R&D? Did you have a personal connection with Toronto or did you hear about that R&D, uh, grant funding and, and the governmental support and then purposefully open up there because of that?
2: Um, I didn't really know anything about Toronto until um, we started looking for neuroscience uh, engineers to join the team. Uh, and I asked um, a friend who who is, is well known uh, as a theoretical neuroscientist. Uh, Mentioned what are the top five towns and, and and said you know she sort of listed the towns. I was like that's interesting. One of those towns I had a business development associate uh, that already lived there, and I asked him. I said, "Well, what's going on in Toronto?" And he says, "Well, come up and see." And so I went up and um, hung out in Toronto for a little bit, and then we went and met with a bunch of people, and it was amazing. And so I said, "Well." What is this is a hidden a hidden little secret kind of thing and it's not a secret anymore, you know um, all, all the big companies are are recruiting up there and have a big place. but it was right around the time that the vector Institute um, got their funding and that was a big issue for it's a it's an institute for research and AI. Um, uh, and so the AI fellow Google uh, had headed up the the institute up there. And so that was really attractive for us. And so we thought, well, we need to have, it's going to be very expensive for us as an as a angel-funded or even a bootstrapped company to recruit high-quality talent from anywhere uh, and, and move them to California, which is expensive. Uh, and so we thought, well, why don't we just create a branch here and a subsidiary so that we just seeded that. Uh, and, and so once we did that, the intention was to initially uh, use it to attract and create kind of a, uh, well, just an R&D uh, team uh, up there. Uh, and then since we've sort of moved past some of the high risk research aspects, we've sort of re re repositioned the team more as our build team, a software build team. Um, we're doing a lot of the hardware and the electronics and stuff in the United States. Um, but, uh, the actual algorithm work, uh, and some of the architectural work, biosignal processing work is all happening up in Toronto.
1: So I want to spend the rest of the time on segueing into this seed round, the 12 million that was recently released. So hopefully you have a few extra minutes for me here, but, um, First and foremost, seed one of 1.2 and now all of a sudden with non-dilutive grants, like you mentioned, now all of a sudden this press release comes out of 12 million and you call it a seed round. Most true medical device entrepreneurs who are listening this, whether it's the next catheter or whatever it may be, seed round of 12 million, their jaw drops. I mean, typically a seed round, a big seed round is 2 million. That's typical. Um, Mm. I know that you're in the high tech space and here we are talking about a lot more money. Why call it a seed round? Where does 12 million come from? And then where was your shift in focus from the audience that you were raising from, or I should say the investor audience that you raised the seed one from, I'm assuming going into venture for the 12 million and talk about that journey of segueing into that much larger round.
2: Well, one of the things we learned in the process of of doing the fundraising, uh, was that there's different, there's just different risk appetites, uh, in these different venture funds and within the partnerships. Uh, and not only just the risk appetites, it's actually their thesis, which is what their LPs are investing in. And so there's this whole risk profile that's associated with that. And so some uh, organizations, number one, so if they're seed investors, uh, typical, like angel slash early seed uh, or seed one, they're typically smaller funds, you know, 50, you know, 25 to 50, maybe hundred million dollar fund. And that's kind of like your seed fund. Uh, so they can only make so many bets, and which means their proportional check sizes are much smaller. Um, and then you kind of get into the late st- sort of series seed stage, uh, series seed and, and series A, series B. And the check sizes are larger. The funds are larger. Um, and so you might have a 250 to a 500 million or even a billion dollar fund. Um, and their typical check sizes that they have to deploy are anywhere between five and $10 million. So you have kind of this weird dis- disparity where you have some firms, they, they can write a hundred thousand dollar check and other firms can't write a check smaller than 5 million. Right. And <laughs> you're kind of in this, in this middle ground and, and that's, you know, you could we could have a whole conversation about why that might be. And, 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 but when you think about it that's a good place for non-dilutive funding to step in right is to kind of come in and help mezzanine some of that difference um and say okay well i don't necessarily need to raise 12 million of venture i could raise five million of venture and get five million in grants and then you're kind of you know you're still getting to where you need to go in a more thoughtful way um so there's strategies for, for going about doing that but you know for us your, your question is why did we call it a seed versus a series A. And and in fact, we went out raising it as a series A. So we were shopping it as a series A deal. Um, But as we started to look at the profile of those users, now look at it through a different angle, which is if they're kind of consumer health tech, like non-regulatory, so they might, if they do regulatory, it's like a class one, like they'll never do a class two, you know, so it's class one or consumer, they're looking for different milestones and different metrics. To say you are a Series A, uh, you know, whereas like a Series A for like a non-medical device company, um, your your metrics you're looking at somewhere between one and a half to two and a half million dollar revenue run rate. Um, you're looking at uh, all of your engineering risk is gone. Um, most of your sales and product market fit risk is gone because you've proven it through revenue traction and Series A is truly a growth round, right? It's like pump a lot of money in and it's just to hire a bunch of salespeople and marketing and shoo, go. <clears throat> Whereas for if you're in a regulated, like MedDev or something like this, a Series A can still be pre-revenue, right? It can still, because you're still dealing with a whole different uh, commercialization pathway. So if you're a deep tech or a hard tech company, um, a Series A might be a $50 million series A, whereas for a non-medical device, a series A is more like a $10 million series A. So because you know that there's all this still clinical risk and other things that are still in the way uh, for like a therapeutic or something like that. So we sort of fell more what we, we were pursuing the more health tech kind of side of things, and we were always misaligned with kind of where we were with being honest with the technology and the business and what was ahead and so just by shifting our focus to say well we're actually more of a deep tech company than we are kind of a health tech company all of a sudden the profile of the investors that we were talking to shifted Um, their willingness to make a larger investment pre-revenue went way up and then also there was a high tolerance for saying the downstream the next round is going to be an even bigger round because they know it's got other kinds of risks to like going to market through, say, a provider network or dealing with payers and other kinds of things, which have a longer time horizon um, and are more complicated. So, so I think that was the one shift where we sort of acknowledge we're we're deep tech, and when we talk about deep tech, it's AI, BCI, you know, AR. So you sort of do a Venn diagram of all the deep tech stuff that we're doing. Um, the the least deep tech part of this was the market, right? Um, which was very appealing to say, hey, we've actually taken away a lot of the engineering risk, the science risk, we've taken away a lot of go-to-market risk by advancing a lot of the work we're doing, um, by creating a, an advisory council of end users and customers and, and key key opinion leaders. Um, you know, we've got 150 people that we have in, under NDA that are all kind of like an advisory council for us um, that represent our target population. And we interact with them on a very regular basis to to sort of de-risk and vet some of the work and improve what we're doing. Um, so we co-design with with our end users. So all that being said, like, how did you raise such a large seed? It's because we've taken away a lot of risk and we've positioned our company as, and honestly saying, this is a deep tech thing. And we've sort of said, let's Let's forget that, you know, originally one of the mistakes was we thought that we could disrupt the industry with the B2C model, like a SaaS B2C model. We thought, Oh, that's going to be hands down. People want to basically have a low cost monthly payment for some of this stuff. And it was wrong. So wrong. (laughs) Um, Some people do, um, but the bulk of people that would be best served with this kind of technology, most are rely on insurance um, or they don't want to, If you think about you're paying a monthly fee for your voice, like what if all of a sudden you couldn't make that next monthly payment? Does that mean that you don't have a voice anymore? I mean, people want like there's a there's a psychology around like who can take something away once they get it. And knowing that someone wants to buy something outright or they want insurance to pay for it and know that insurance will continue to pay for it. Because as long as they qualify for insurance, it takes a lot of the anxiety away from the purchase uh, and the recommendation. So we just accepted that and said that's an area that we're just not going to try and disrupt right now. <laughs> you know, go go with that um, and accept that that's how things get paid for. Um, we're disrupting on all these other areas anyway, um, and I think once we accepted that, then we it became obvious that we are a med tech company.
1: So you, you mentioned deep tech and this the switch on your audience, just to make it clear, for me at least, I've talked to a lot of SaaS companies within the medical device field that, that are going after MedTech as clients, it's more B2B. And um, in order to raise money, they had to look at multiple markets in terms of investors, right? They, they went after the pure, we know everything about SaaS investors, but not much about MedTech or if anything about MedTech, but we know that you are you have a business model, commercialization, et cetera. So we're, we're your SaaS investor. We're gonna jump on your board as a SaaS investor. And then because their audience is med tech, they they wanted to understand that psychology as well as the benefits of understanding who to talk to, et cetera. So then they Mm -hmm. went after classical medical device or med tech investors. And then they ended up getting a med tech board member as well. So they had med tech Mm -hmm. and SaaS because they were a SaaS based platform going after med tech. When you did that shift in your focus on audience Mm -hmm. for for investors, Mm -hmm. you mentioned health tech, deep tech. I mean, did you reach out to the most classical catheter medical device investors and they were like, thanks, but no thanks. And then you realized that you had to go to a little bit more AI, AR, out there style investors in terms of some of the high tech stuff. Is that why? Because you just learned your audience?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it, um, yeah, because we, we're not like a single widget. Like there's a, com- a lot of companies out there, med tech, like you use a catheter example. It's like be the best darn catheter in the world. <laughs> it's like, that's a very focused, narrowly defined kind of thing. Um, because partly what we're doing is a bit of systems integration. Um, we're more of a Venn diagram. So we had to be very mindful of not putting too much uh, emphasis on one of those circles in our Venn diagram, because then you become overweight in one area um, from an investor, like a cap table perspective, you know, uh, and saying, well, um, you know, so, so we looked at, you know, AI, you um, Uh, deep tech sort of neuroscience, uh, uh, health tech, and then social impact. So those four areas were really important to us. So social impact represented family office, Um, uh, health tech represented corporate. So corporate on the health payer provider side, Um, AI could be corporate or could be VC and deep tech could be corporate or could be VC. Uh, thinking about science. And so where we ended up was uh, we talked to about 200 BCs over a nine-month period and and ranging from life sciences, pharmaceuticals, implantables, -implantables, non-implantables, consumer health. We we, we covered the gamut, but we kept coming back to who are the ones that are like that right composition. And so we ended up going with Prime Movers Lab as a partner. And so, and this wasn't really just a one-way interview. So it was mutual diligence. So it truly is like partnership. Um, So Prime Movers Lab uh, from a deep tech science. Uh, Northwell Health. Uh, So Northwell is a corporate venture group of Northwell Health Systems, New York State's largest health system. Um, they're, They're working with us on the health tech side. Uh, Amazon's Alexa fund uh, because we had already integrated and shipped uh, an Alexa integration in a mobile app, so we'd already proven that we could do it and get the necessary exemptions. Um, There's a lot of stuff that we had to, to to work through that was very different than what they're normally doing. So we had to actually go all the way up the food chain to get an exception for ourselves. So they proved that we could deal with that. So we got, we we got their their support on the AI side, and then uh, a group called Volta Circle, which is a circular economy uh, impact, uh, family office, um, uh, out of Indonesia. Uh, so, um, those were the four that we ended up going with plus, uh, pro uh, participation from existing shareholders. Um, so, um,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, so not, not to overly simplify what you just shared, but for all those entrepreneurs listening in right now, uh, you know, even if you do have your classic catheter device, right. But the, the summary, the summary, the summary of what you just shared at least for me, is know your audience and know what you want in terms of value from your investors. And, and sometimes, if you have a healthcare bend to your technology, go after those healthcare or health tech investors. If you have a higher tech, high tech, deep tech, maybe even neuro in there, focus on those style of investors. But in summary, it's really do due diligence on your investor style and then focus on that as opposed to just doing this outward blast or just say hey cognition's a medical device we're only going to talk to investors who do medical device because it's a lot more complicated than that
2: yeah and also think about because at this stage especially um, these are it's hard to get rid of anyone right you know so you can you can let go of employees or whatever you can you can terminate advisory agreements but when you have an investor it's very difficult to un, you know unwind a, a, a poor decision there so take you know if you can uh, take your time uh, and uh make sure you're bringing on the right partnerships um right style right culture fit um and to your point uh saying well what do we what does the business need besides money like what what do we need over the next two years three years that we couldn't get without a partner um and what kind of partner could help you achieve that right um and so that's something to look forward to. So, if it's you know help with getting through the regulatory process or FDA or getting through CE, um, look for people who've done that. Right. Um, if it's about um, dealing with disrupting payer models or or what have you, then really focus on people that have figured out payer models, right? You know, or that they have a thesis around that. Um, you know, so so really think about your business and go two or three levels deep under the the business and the thesis, because you get a lot of lip service. And if you just visit people's websites, they say they invest in everything, but truthfully, they don't. Um, And you wouldn't know it from the first conversation.
1: My last question here, I'm going to take a different spin on this one. More on the, the human aspect, you, Andreas, as a human being, a, an individual who sometimes is alone and looks in the mirror, other times a father who drops off his child at, at school, not an entrepreneur. For those entrepreneurs listening in, as a first-time capital raiser and all this experience that you had to go through, you've given a lot of pearls of wisdom on mechanics of how to assess and what to go through when you're going through capital raises, especially even the book recommendation. But the psychology of raising capital, if you could talk from a human standpoint, is it hard? Is it difficult? Um, Does it keep you up at night? I mean, all the things that you a few years ago didn't know about raising capital as a human. What's that psychology of raising capital? Is it tough? Is it draining? Do you make a lot of mistakes? Just any pearls of wisdom from a very human standpoint that you give to the audience listening in right now? Yeah. As a first-time capital raiser, what would that be?
2: Um, the first thing that you're going to have to deal with is is just your own ego. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you're going to have to get really clear that you're going to hear no a lot. And you need to recognize that Hearing no is not a personal attack on you. That no is, does not mean that you're not good enough, right? No is just simply like what I, what I tell myself is whenever I hear no, I'm actually, I, I get excited when I hear no, right? Because no means two things, right? No means no, not now, right? No is rare, very rarely no in this world, right? No is like no not now, so why not now? Oh, okay. If we do these things, then maybe later. Great. I'll make a note and I'll come back later. Or if it's a hard no, you just save me a bunch of time and money. Thank you. <laughs> right? I don't have to go back and like I don't have to get your no to a maybe, right? Um maybe is the worst place to be because you're in this sort of constant loop of not sure whether it's a no or a yes, right? And so whatever you do, frame your conversations to get to no or yes, as fast as you can. And if it's a no, determine if it's a no, not now, right? Like that is, that is the best thing I could do. And it allows me to sleep better at night and not sort of beat myself up um, after speaking to hundreds of people.
1: I love that. Perfect way to end this. Andreas Forslin, founder and CEO, of cognition, not only did you give us a huge, awesome background on the BCI landscape, assisted reality, augmented reality, metaverse, but also what is it like to be this first time capital raiser and in this unique field where you are playing with different dimensions, health tech, deep tech, neurotech, um, consumerism a little bit. I mean, all these different aspects of raising capital like you mentioned. So I, I wanna say thank you for telling your story. Congratulations on that huge 12 million series seed, and we're looking forward to the progress that you guys are about to make next year. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we aim to demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.